attention computer-aided design software users. Are you tired of expensive subscriptions and constantly increasing prices? There's an alternative to high subscription pricing. It's called BricsCAD. It's innovative, fast and native DWG. It's totally compatible with what you know and it's available in a permanent lifetime license. If you know AutoCAD, you know BricsCAD. Try it for free for 30 days at Brixies.com. Then buy a lifetime license for less. That's B-R-I-C-S-Y-S dot com. You're around about one and a half times more likely to break down as a result of hitting a pothole today than you were back in 2007, where the roads, frankly, across most of the country um, were in a far better, a far better state than they are today. So when you see bridges close, then people go, oh, geez, our transport network is, is quite vital for getting people to work or getting medical supplies or, or getting people to hospital appointments. It's, it, it functions on such a, such a human level. And I think potholes, people kind of lose sight of that sometimes. They think it's, it's a pothole, but actually it could be someone's vehicle getting damaged. It could be someone uh, hitting it on a bike and falling over and getting badly hurt. According to the alarm survey, uh, a local authority road on average is only resurfaced once every 67 years. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne and in this episode we're taking a look at an issue that dominates roads in the UK especially during winter months. They can be small or large, shallow or deep, an inconvenience, or downright dangerous. We're talking about potholes. We've become accustomed to seeing them on roads in the UK, but how do they form? How are they repaired? And can we prevent them altogether? Well, we're gonna find out. And the three voices you just heard in our intro are some of the most knowledgeable people in the roads industry. But before we hear more from them, Ross took a trip to Leeds University to find out about a new project that claims to be the answer to pothole prevention. So having these technologies pervasive in our infrastructure, so these things constantly scurrying around, looking for small defects as and when they occur and then fixing them before they come into defects, before they become big defects, um, that to me is, has the potential to completely change the way we operate our infrastructure. Yeah, so hi, I'm uh, Professor Phil Pennell. I'm Professor of Materials and Structures at the School of Civil Engineering in Leeds University. Phil is not only the Professor of Materials and Structures at the School of Civil Engineering in Leeds University, but he is also the man behind a project to enable self-repairing cities of the future. Of course, Phil thinks this is critically important, but even he has been surprised by the interest that his work is now having. Who knew potholes were such a massive interest to the public? You know, I've done scientific research for many years on things that I think are interesting. I've never had anything like the media response that you get for potholes. Zero disruption from streetworks in UK cities by 2050. That's the ultimate aim of the Grand Challenge project launched by the Engineering and Physical Science Research Council, EPSRC. Which aims to balance the impact of city infrastructure engineering on natural systems by using robots and autonomous systems. So Ross, how did the story of robots and potholes begin? The EPSRC put out a call for groundbreaking research. Grand challenges, they called it. 
into restoring the balance between engineered systems and natural systems. And it was an incident just down the road from Leeds that proved to be a catalyst for this project. And um, it occurred to us that this, this was almost the same time as a very large sinkhole opened in the Mancunian Way, which is one of the main roads in and out of Manchester. So this hole was about 10 metres across, about 10 metres deep, needed about uh, 400 tonnes of material to fix it, which then ironically you have to dig back out again to put the services back in. Road was closed for several weeks, massive diversions, massive extra carbon emissions, massive extra pollutants put into the atmosphere. And yet if you dig down into why that sinkhole appeared, it will have been a millimetre scale defect in a pipe. You've got a millimetre scale defect in a water pipe, which water leaks out, it erodes the supporting material beneath the pipe, the pipe sags, it cracks, more water comes out, it gets bigger and bigger, yada yada yada, 10 metre hole. And so you're, you're, you're making metre and, and 100 tonne scale interventions into a system to fix something which is basically a millimetre scale defect. So that was where the sort of imbalance thing came from. And then came a proposal. And so we as the civil engineers talked to our colleagues along the corridor and mechanical engineering who were doing the robots and said, how about we have, you know, autonomous robots, little robots that live effectively in our infrastructure system and can, um, can repair these defects autonomously without being driven by a human before they get to the stage where they cause these kind of defects. And then you take that that um, that concept outwards from pipes to roads where you look at potholes. So we said, well, there's a similar concept there. You get a drone which flies in, analyzes a pothole, puts some carefully graded materials in there, fixes the pothole. In Manchester, the cause of the enormous sinkhole was an aging sewer pipe way beneath the road surface. But most potholes are caused by damage to the surface layers. So there's, there's a wide range of road surfaces across the UK. This is Mike Harper, Chief Executive of the Road Surface Treatments Association, or RSTA for short. They represent 88 members in the UK who install around 100 million square metres of road surface treatments every year. So um, the, there isn't a single sort of typical road surface, um, but asphalt is the predominant material used for road surfacing in the UK. And depending on whether it's a motorway or a local road would depend on the makeup of that road. But typically, if you said a, a lower asphalt layer of 60 millimetres thick, the binder layer, and then a surface course layer of around 40 millimetres thick, that would be typical uh, for a UK road makeup. And what causes potholes? So a pothole is usually a defect in the surface course layer that we talked about. So typically that top 40 millimetres. So it's usually happening from the top of the road surface and it's because the asphalt has cracked, water's getting into the asphalt and then the action of tyres pumping over the asphalt and also freeze thaw tends to uh, blow the pothole as we call it. So that's why we always see uh, potholes pre predominantly between January and March so the water's got into the road over the winter and then as the decay mechanisms happened and it's blown all these potholes. And it's not a new phenomenon, of course. It's in the headlines now because we're seeing so very many of them compared to the amount of potholes that we've seen in previous years. So as an industry, we understand why they form and what we need to do is maintain the roads to stop those cracks in the asphalt happening in the first place and stop the water getting in. But what about simply getting it right in the first place? Mike offers some insight into the consequences of substandard repair work on potholes. So typically uh, a repair, if you're going to, if you're not going to do the cutting out, you might do the repair in maybe 10 or 15 minutes. 
And you might expect that in a high traffic area, it may only last a matter of a few weeks or a few months. Whereas if a repair is done correctly... So square cut edges, sealing the edges and then compacting proper material into the hole. It might take a couple of hours to do that one repair, but you might expect that to last five or 10 years, for example. It's very expensive to do reactive maintenance and also long term, it's disruptive for the road users. So it might give us an idea that the the council has reacted quickly and filled that individual hole. But in reality, they'll be back there in two weeks time to do it again. And then again in three months time, for example. So really much better to take a little bit of time at the start and do it correctly and just do it once. We've been tracking this data uh, for many, many years um, and we can basically look at that to basically work out when the periods were worst for potholes in the UK. This is Rod Dennis, a spokesperson for RAC Breakdown. In response to the pothole problem, they have put together an RAC pothole index. And it is data that shows us how likely drivers are to break down as a result of a road defect. We've got these figures on our website, but if you look at what the chart shows, it kind of shows a steadily declining picture between around about 2007 up to 2010, which people might remember um, was quite a cold winter. Gradual sort of improvement with a few exceptions. Um, And again, things have been improving certainly over the last year or so, simply because we've had quite a mild winter uh, and you know reasonably kind of uh, you know reasonably kind of mild conditions rather than some huge kind of beast from the east which was obviously um, a little while back now however compared to 2007 you're around about one and a half times more likely to break down as a result of hitting a pothole today than you were back in 2007 where the roads frankly across most of the country we're in a far better a far better state than they are today. Um, so we use this basically to get some sense as to what the scale of the problem is and also the issues that these actually cause for drivers because we do know that potholes regularly rank as one of the, the kind of the top bugbears of drivers in the UK according to our, according to our research. And as Rod alluded to, this can cause a range of problems. So this can be quite significant damage actually. So you know, worst case or sim- best case scenario might be you know, kind of a puncture, which is an inconvenience, but something that can be reasonably um, quickly sorted out at the roadside by one of our patrols, you know, swap the tyre, that sort of thing. However, depending on how you hit that pothole, the angle you hit it, and how high or low your car rides on the road, potholes can actually cause much more damage. So then we enter the sort of the realms of, you know, distorted tyres, uh, broken suspension springs, that sort of thing. So more about the kind of the underlying mechanical workings of the car, um, which are generally problems that you'd need to take your car into a garage to fix. They're not something our patrols, unfortunately, can do a can do a sort of permanent fix for the roadside. And that's where things start to get far more costly uh, and just inconvenient as well. And if you happen to be on two wheels as opposed to four, if you're a cyclist, motorcyclist. Um, use a scooter, that sort of thing. Actually, potholes can actually be, uh, you know, far more dangerous. It's not just about the financial cost, but it's also the kind of the impact on your uh, on your safety on those roads as well. So they cause all sorts of problems, and it is frustrating for for us. We, we've talked about this issue. I've talked about this issue for many years about the need to try to get to our roads back to some sort of basic, consistent standard across the UK, which we just don't have at the moment. Um, to stop us talking about uh, the problem of potholes, but sadly at the moment it doesn't really look like the issue is going away. So is it a result of successive years of reducing the amount of money that we spend on highway maintenance in the UK? Here's Mike again. Not so much for the um, strategic road network, that's sort of highways England and motorways, but more for the local road network. So budgets are under pressure and it's a little bit like 
if you're protecting wood on the outside of your house, for example, if you've got wooden window frames or something, you know if you protect them regularly, you paint them or varnish them, that they'll last a long time. You also know if you don't do it, you can get away with it for a short amount of time, but it will catch you up and then you'll have to replace the windows. And that's exactly what's happening in asphalt road surfaces in the UK. So we're not doing that maintenance treatment that we need to do at regular intervals. So we've got away with it for a few years and now the roads are in poorer condition as a result and we're seeing a much higher incidence of potholes. And of course, on the other side of the coin, we've got more traffic on the roads in the UK than ever before. So we're spending less on maintenance and we've got more, more traffic. So it's just a case of the roads are wearing out more quickly. So what's currently being done to solve these problems? According to Rod, there's an underlying issue that the UK has around funding structures. That's that our major roads... Those are our motorways, our kind of major trunk A roads. They have ring fence funding from national government, but local authority roads do not. And obviously, if you're a council and you don't, and your you know your resources are stretched, you have to make a decision about where you spend your money. And even though it, uh, you know none of us want to see potholes on the roads, let's be honest: if you're a council and you've got tough decisions to make about where to spend and where to cut, roads budgets are one of those things that are always squeezed. So, on the topic of road budgets, as Rod mentioned, we want to find out how funding is distributed and structured. My name is Justin Ward, and I work for the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transportation, CIHT. CIHT is a charity, a learned society and a membership body representing the professionals who plan, design, build, manage and operate transport and infrastructure. So funding largely comes from central government and in 2017-18 it was about £3.6 billion for revenue and capital uh, for roads in England. And capital funding is for sort of major renewal of the assets that will give it a life over many years. So things like road reconstruction, things like schemes to prevent water ingress, including resurfacing, that would be some of the examples of capital works. And then there's revenue funding. That's for the routine maintenance, day-to-day operations. So when we're talking about potholes and filling potholes, that's where the, the revenue funding is directed. And just the two connect because revenue funding is too supports the staff that carry out these works so the revenue funding is used to support the staff that will carry out the capital works and also deliver the day-to-day services so it's important that both have the right level of funding for the delivery of the highway service so there have been studies looking at the 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 difference in funding levels for the strategic road network and the local road network now this is not to say that the less money should go to the strategic road network probably their funding settlements Right, it's more that there's a there's a shortfall in the the money that's allocated to local roads. A big shortfall, and there's varying figures on how much more is needed. It's uh, from the National Infrastructure Commission. They came up with a figure of about five billion needed. Uh, other figures have ranged from twelve to fifteen billion additional funding required to to address the maintenance backlog to bring the network up into a sort of steady state of condition. Everyone agrees that more investment's needed for local roads, but changing the funding model to give more long-term certainty to local road spending is another suggestion. I think it's in other sectors you see what's called a TOTEX, total expenditure model, so that covers both the capital and revenue funding. And I think ideally the sector would, would, would welcome that. I think you see it a bit with Highways England. They've got their five-year settlement that includes the capital and revenue because you need both. 
you need those major renewal schemes. They're managing a whole range of assets, including bridges that will require capital works, strengthening works, and so on. So it's not just the revenue that's the shortfall. It's it's that whole envelope. And then it needs that certainty so you can gear up workforces, you can plan accordingly, and so on. And these are assets that, that last uh, for decades. I think certainty is an infrastructure asset. So I think they like certainty and it needs to be over a period of time to plan so absolutely and on a more human level it's when infrastructure fails that people really realize its value so when you see bridges close then people go oh geez our transport network is it's quite vital for getting people to work or getting medical supplies or or getting people to hospital appointments it's it, it functions on such a such a human level and I think potholes people kind of lose sight of that sometimes they think it's it's a pothole but actually it could be someone's vehicle getting damaged it could be someone uh, hitting it on a bike and falling over and getting badly hurt so I think there's a there's a real human dimension to it so I think it's it's trying to convey that roads are for people they're for society and I think local roads are particularly vitally important for communities and for getting people to places distributing goods and so on so it's that that so potholes are kind of that's why there's an interest in them I think because they're 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 important so the press gets an in, the press picks up stories on them politicians have pothole action funds but because it's it's because the local road infrastructure is is vitally important I think so that's why and I think it's great what our members do to try and make sure that they they keep the arteries of the country kind of flowing I guess Justin is not the only one to think of roads as vital life support here's Phil again and then the analogy we always use is this idea of the city as an organism. So back in 380 BC, I think, Plato's Republic called the city an organism. And you can identify, if you like, or draw analogies between a city and an organism. So we've got our columns and beams and roads, which are sort of like the bones. And then we've got the various pipes, which are like the blood vessels. And then in later years, we've convinced ourselves that we've built smart cities by having layers and layers of electronic monitoring and sensing equipment, which is sort of like our nerves and the brains. But the thing that the city's always missed in this analogy with an organism is the ability to heal itself. We've got no white blood cells. We've got no inflammatory response. We've got no ability for the city to actually heal itself, to actually fix its own problems. So that's the sort of tack that we took to this. And then the whole process has been an exploration of how we can go from that initial concept to combining our infrastructure systems with robotic systems and the vision and the sensing and the locomotion, the charging and the battery power and all the rest of it that's required. And of course, the social aspects of this, how does that fit in with current work patterns in the construction and infrastructure industry? How will it change jobs? Will it allow us to do things we couldn't do before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they're not trying to do is invent drones and its materials from scratch. So a lot of what we're using is taking off-the-shelf drone platforms. So our, the, the thing that's, that's caused all the, all the interest in this project is the pothole robot. So that came from a conception of, well, can we get a, a relatively commercial drone, not the kinds of things you, you'll sort of buy in the toy shop, but big, you know, commercial drones that can lift a few kilos. Can we basically put a 3D printer on that drone? And can we then get that 3D printer, instead of printing plastic, to actually get it to print the same materials that the roads are made out of? Phil and the team are tackling this from two separate levels. As well as the higher-priced robots, which run into the tens of thousands of pounds, what about making robots that are not only drastically cheaper to produce, but are also biologically inspired? 
Professor Nessa Cohen works on these bio-inspired robots, which are completely different to high-tech and expensive drone systems. Her designs are influenced by a creature that can adapt to any given ecosystem. And then at the other end of the scale, we're taking some quite radical systems and seeing if we can adapt those to roads. And these are based on very, very simple sensors and very, very simple processing, ludicrously simpler, simpler than a Raspberry Pi, um, in order to basically mimic the brain of a nematode worm. So a nematode worm has a handful of neurons in its head, and yet it's perfectly happy to find food and avoid danger with the ability to do very little more than say, is it lighter here than it is here? Is it darker here than it is here? Is it saltier here than it is here and vice versa? And they won't cost thousands of pounds. And by taking that inspiration from that, that, that bio, that biological control and actuation mechanism, NET has managed to build some robots which cost, you know, tens of pounds each, but can actually basically just be dropped onto a road, no supervision at all. It's a little plastic box, um, you know, maybe like two cigarette packets joined together. It's got a couple of cheap plastic wheels on to an incredibly cheap plastic motor. We actually use a Raspberry Pi chip because that's the cheapest chip that we could get. Um, and it has two infrared sensors, which are the kind of things that you'd find in a remote control. I mean, the whole thing together costs about, you know, at the minute from off the shelf parts, it costs, you know, 20 pounds of that order. Um, and when you let it go, it, it's, it's, it's basically based on the way that a nematode worm senses environment. It's doing its own thing. It is, it is the closest thing to an artificial intelligent being that I think I've probably ever seen. And you dump it on the road and the first time you do it, it can't work out what a crack is and what a pothole is. You bring it back in, you, you, you train it and say, we well, got that one right and you got that one wrong. You sell that again. After it's had about three passes, it's as good as a human operator. And you can just leave it wandering around all night under its under its own volition, no no supervision at all, and it will map and um, and identify potholes and road defects more efficiently than a human will. It, 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 I mean, it's it's really really quite astonishing. It, it's a genuinely intelligent, or as close to it as we can get, robot for you know. And if you could if you could build it out of mass-produced parts, you could you could build it. You could probably build it for a pound. It's, it's astonishing. And they will simply scoot around on the road, training themselves and learning how to identify and mark different defects on roads. As you might have already guessed, the concept of autonomy is key within this project. Well, the key to this, of course, is getting the drones to operate themselves. I mean, you know, sticking, sticking things on drones and flying them around, that's not science. That's, the industry can do that without our help. They, they, the strides they've made in drone control is unbelievable. What we're trying to do is to develop systems that are autonomous. They make their own decisions. So a lot of the time, we aren't actually operating the drones. But once it's in the air... It's making its own decision. It's deciding where it goes. So it might take cues from the ground. You know, there's a road here. There's not a road here. There's another robot there. I need to communicate with that robot. So it's actually deciding where it goes. It's deciding when it sees a pothole. Well, that's a, that's a defect that I can repair or that's a defect that I need to report and somebody else needs to come in and repair it. So the ethos of the project is that we're not actually controlling the drones. We're building the sensing and control systems so they're effectively autonomous to a large degree apart from the initial deployment and the collection. So how does the aerial drone carry out a pothole operation? So the, the basic sort of set of steps that the drone would go through in order to repair a pothole and we should say you know quite clearly we're not talking about drones that are going to repair the kind of potholes that will break your tires um, we're talking about nipping the, those 10 pence piece or 50 pence piece size potholes or you know 
100 millimeter long cracks in the bud before they form. First things first, the identification of the crack. And we're very much about integration of systems. So it might be that this crack has been previously identified by another system or by one of the worm robots, or indeed it might have been identified on board by the drone. So it will, it will either have been told, it will detect that there is a crack. The next stage is to identify the type of defect. So it will then come to the defects. It will use, at the moment, a, a, a suite of different sensing technologies. So it might be infrared, might be ultrasonics, might be hyperspectral cameras, might be visual frequencies. And it will basically scan the defect and it will say, right, what size is this defect? What shape is this defect? In an ideal world, it will also say, what's the properties of the material around that defect? Because if you ever look at a, a traditional pothole repair, what tends to happen is you repair the pothole and it all breaks up around the edge because what you've put in the pothole is a lot stiffer or a lot less stiff than the road around the pothole. And the other activity that the drone will carry out is analysing the properties of the road surface to match it with the right field material. And then it will talk to the 3D printer and say, right, I need to print material into that hole of this property because the great thing about the 3D printer is at least in principle you can get it to change the properties of what it is that you're printing. Custom made repairs. So you'll print a repair which is ideally matched with the properties of that, that thing. So it will then land on there, activate the 3D printer, it'll print a custom made repair into the hole, um, geotag that it's actually made that repair so that's now on a database somewhere saying this road is repaired here and it'll fly off and look for the next, for the next pothole. And, you know, what we're also working on now is working out that's probably not the most efficient way to do it. But, you know, this is a this is a Paris fashion show, Formula One kind of thing. Yeah, we don't ever think that this is how we're going to do it, but it demonstrates all the different systems that we'll need to actually do it. So you might, for example, say, well, actually, it's daft to have a drone flying around scanning for potholes. What you do is you put a camera on the back of some council vehicles which drive around town all day and they geotag potholes. So that then takes that bit of it away and allows you to simplify the drone. So it's, it's integration of systems is also what we're interested in. But what about the teething problems in releasing this army of different robots onto the roads? For Phil, most of the problems are social and regulatory and not technical. So most of them are, are, are regulatory, for example. So there's all kinds of regulations saying who can and can't fly drones, um, who's who, where you can and can't fly them. And of course, when you add autonomy into that, you run into the you run into the same problem you've got with autonomous vehicles. Well, who is actually driving that drone? Well, it's driving itself. So who's ultimately responsible for what it does or doesn't do? Um, so that's that's one of the biggest problems. The next phase that the project team is going to tackle over the next few months, according to Phil, is looking at some public acceptance. Although it seems like they've already made a start on that journey. When we deployed some of these on the university campus, we sort of anecdotally observed how the students interacted with the robots and they completely ignored them. They just didn't take any notice of them. It was just something else in, in the built environment, which we were quite surprised at. Um, but of course, that's very different to having a drone flying along on a busy motorway um, um, you know, on a live carriageway when people are doing 70 miles an hour in the, in the lane next door. So, you know, these, it's these kinds of issues that need to be dealt with. So the other key social aspect, of course, is the effect on jobs. Um, the, the big question that gets asked by the mainstream media whenever I do something for the Telegraph or Radio 4 or whatever is the robots are coming to take our jobs. Um, slightly, you know, old-fashioned view of how robots actually work in industry. So we're also working with economists on what, will be the effect on jobs, not just in the infrastructure industry, but looking more broadly at the effect of robots and autonomous systems on jobs. So that all still needs to be unpicked.
So it's not about replacing jobs. It's about helping the industry to be able to respond in a more agile manner. But the flip side of that, of course, is there's a there's a chronic shortage of people to work in the infrastructure industry. We're not talking about replacing jobs. What we're talking about is freeing people from having to do jobs which are dirty. Jobs which are dangerous. Jobs which have to be done at night. Jobs which have to be done on live carriageways. Jobs which have to be done up on gantries. Um, and getting robots to do those jobs and freeing up these people in our industry who are very skilled with many years of experience and getting them to do the more complex and more interesting tasks that currently get ignored because we're driving around dumping, dumping kilos of, of, of black goo into potholes. And as of now, the EPSRC Grand Challenge Project and Phil are at the stage of working out which of Leeds' local authority roads they can test these robots on next. And it's a stage where they think they're confident enough to take that next step. I think I'm right in saying that the worm-inspired robots, the very cheap ones that basically, they are genuinely autonomous. They've already had a go on, on a live road, I think. We're also um, got Highways England as a partner on the project. So um, somebody from Highways England chairs our steering committee at the moment. And so we're also um, in talks with Highways England as to how we could actually deploy this on you know, a trunk road, a, a major area or a motorway at the moment. So that's the kind of stage of deployment we're at at the moment. This project of Phil's is still in its early stages of its lifespan, but with Highways England on board, there is promise. Some of the drone systems that the team are using run into the realms of the tens of thousands of pounds, with one of the designs, which Phil likens to a robot dog with its long carbon fiber robotic arms, reaching to the dizzy financial heights of around 100 to 200,000 pounds. These numbers do seem quite high. However, at the heart of this, the term prevention is better than the cure is the message that Phil and his colleagues are trying to get across. And it's one message that should be taken into account greatly with regards to the pothole pandemic. What we're trying to do with these systems is, is to build systems that can make multiple frequent, very small repairs, which stop these big problems from actually occurring in the first place. So the sort of business model for doing this needs to take into account a much longer timescale, a much, a much bigger timescale than just saying, well, that drone's much more expensive than two blokes. And unfortunately, it's still mostly blokes and a white van. You know, there's, there's the business models for this are the next step after this technical and engineering and, and social sciences project. The next step is to say, well, how do we then translate that into business models? How do we convince someone who actually has to pay for road repairs that by buying an expensive drone that can make multiple independent repairs and, and tailor those repairs so they're not just one size fits all, how does that actually save you money in the long run by giving you less congestion, less pollution, less, um, less, less, less nitrous oxide pollution, less particulates, less um, air quality deaths, etc. Building the business models that build all that in is the next step of this project. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne and Ross McPherson. Edited by John Young. Special thanks to the RSTA, RAC, CIHT and Professor Phil Pennell of the University of Leeds. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps from iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can listen to it on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. If you like our episodes, please leave us a fantastic review and share us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Reddit. And if you've not heard our new podcast yet, The Tunnelling Podcast, made in partnership with the British Tunnelling Society, go and find it on your podcast app.